Good morning. If we haven't met, my name's Trevor, and I'm one of the members of the teaching team here at Philida. And if you can remember back before all this coronavirus stuff started, uh, we were actually going through an alternate sermon series that was on the writings of John. Well, the letters of John. So 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And the last time that we were in the series was, I think, in like mid-March, uh, and Ian was preaching out of 1st John chapter 2. So one of the things that one of the many things that the whole coronavirus thing has messed up uh, was our preaching schedule. And so, long story short, um, our series got completely out of order. And so today we're actually going to be looking at the last three verses of the entire book. We're going to be looking at 1 John 5, 28 through 31, when we haven't really covered a whole lot of ground between John chapter 2 and John chapter 5. So, Some of our teachers in the future are going to come back, and they are going to go over those uh, a little bit later, but right now we're just going to be jumping right to the end of uh, 1 John. Fortunately, though, uh, John's writing is uh, mostly thematic. He talks about different themes and motifs, and so we're not missing a ton by kind of skipping around a little bit, especially because we're going to go and kind of fill in what's in between. So I'm just going to go ahead and read uh, the passage right now, and then we'll jump right into it. So this is 1 John 5, 28 through 31. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under control of the evil one. We also know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. I remember when I uh, was younger. I remember I was probably in late elementary school or or early middle school, and I remember reading the end of 1 John, and I remember writing either in my Bible or in a little notebook that I had um, that I thought the ending, his dear children, keep yourselves from idols ending, uh, felt really abrupt and really awkward. I remember writing in my Bible and saying, uh, this is a terrible ending. My English teacher would kill me if I finished an essay this way. Uh, Because what it feels like to me, when I initially read it, is that John is, he's talking about some of these core truths that we need to remember, and then he, it feels, at least when, uh, you know, I initially look at it, he just kind of throws this random, keep yourselves from idols, as almost like a PS to a letter. Those of you that are old enough to have uh, written letters, my generation, we didn't do it very often. Uh, But those of us that are old enough to, to write letters, when you get done with the body of your letter, Uh, You know, you say to so-and-so, you write your letter from me, uh, and then when there's something maybe that you forgot that you wanted to add, uh, you know, don't forget to feed my dog while I'm on vacation, or I hope you're having a good time at Disneyland or whatever, you would write PS, which stands for postscript, like a little note at the end, uh, and then you would go and add, you know, your last-minute little add-on that you forgot to mention earlier. And when I initially look at this and read this, that's exactly what his keep yourselves from idols command feels like. It feels like he talks for five chapters about what our identity is in Jesus and what we need to know about who we are in Christ. And then John remembers, oh, shoot, I need to tell these guys uh, not to worship idols. And so, P.S., don't worship idols. See you later. 
That's kind of what it feels like to me uh, when I initially read it. I remember when I was in uh, high school and college and when I would write essays uh, for my English class, what I wanted to do at the end of one of my essays is I would want to finish with a sentence that would kind of convey why what I just said was important. I would want to write in you know, a neat, succinct, simple sentence why everything I talked about for the last 10 pages matter, and I would want to end with sort of a, now that you have read this, or about what I've written, now that you've read about uh, you know, some historical event that happened four year, 400 years ago, or now that you've read about what I think about you know, this author's theme about this, now that you know this, you should go and think this way, or live this way, or do something this way. That was all my, always my goal uh, when I finished writing an essay. And the more that I got to study First uh, John, the more that I realized that his dear children keep yourselves from idols phrase at the end isn't just a, you know, attack on P.S. I forgot to tell you this earlier. His dear children keep yourselves from idols is actually the now that you know all of this stuff that I've talked about for the last five chapters, go and live this way. John writes his entire letter um, through a lot of contrasts. He sees things very, very black and white. And so when we read through First John, he talks about how you are either living in the light or you're living in the darkness. You're either a follower of Jesus or you are a rejecter of Jesus. You're either a lover of God or a hater of God, a child of God or a child of the devil. He uses some really, really strong contrasting language to set up uh, kind of this, you know, his view of what, what the world is and what, who we are as Christians and who uh, people that aren't Christians are, I guess, is kind of a blunt way of saying it. Uh, and he kind of sets this up through really strong contrasting imagery. And for, I know for me, uh, this can feel kind of offensive almost. Um, in my, you know, Western 21st century way of thinking, it, it feels almost offensive the way that he talks uh, in such stark black and white contrasts. I, I know that I tend to see things a lot more in the gray, and when John talks so blatantly black and white uh, about being a follower or a rejecter of Jesus, that can almost feel offensive. I think, though, that there is a lot. I know that I, in particular, can, can learn from John and, you know, his style of writing, and I think that there's a lot that we can learn uh, from these strong contrasts that, the, that he uses. And I think that this just shows us, even though it can seem scary or, you know, almost offensive, I think that his strong style of writing can show us how important it is for us to follow Jesus and how big of a deal some of these things are. And so when John finishes his letter here, he, he tells us a couple things that we know. Um, and then when he has his, dear children, keep yourselves from idols statement at the end, that is his, now that you know that there are these two, two camps, those who follow Jesus and those who reject Jesus, now that I have told you all of this about what your identity is and about who Jesus is and who you are because of Jesus, now that you know all of this, Go forth, and because you follow Jesus, keep yourselves from idols. His final statement is a, go forth, keep yourselves from idols because of everything that I've talked about for the last five chapters. And so the word idol isn't a word that we use or hear very much. 
Uh, I could probably count on one hand the amount of times I've heard the word idol outside of either a church context or like an ancient Western civilization history class. Uh, The word idol isn't used very often, and when I think of idolatry, I think of uh, usually like ancient people groups bowing down to like a, an image or an altar or a picture of, of some, you know, God that they've chosen to worship. And we see this type of idolatry all throughout the Bible, all the way from, you know, Genesis all the way to the end in Revelation. We see uh, people over and over again worshiping gods other than Yahweh, the true God of the Bible. And God tells his people over and over again throughout the entire Bible don't do that. Don't worship other gods. When we go all the way back, uh, you know, to the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. And that command is repeated over and over and over again uh, throughout the entire biblical story. And while First John is mostly silent on uh, who its audience is, what church John is writing to, um, a lot of people smarter than me uh, think that John is likely living and writing to the church in Ephesus, which is the same group of people that the book of Ephesians is written to. And if that's the case, uh, the Ephesians are no strangers to idolatry. In the book of Acts, the apostle Paul is actually in Ephesus, and he finds himself uh, in the middle of a riot because the people accuse him of discrediting one of their goddesses, Artemis. And so they get really upset, and Paul finds himself in the middle of a riot because he's discrediting uh, one of their gods. And so when John is telling, um, when John is telling his readers, "You guys need to keep yourselves from idolatry," I'm sure that their their culture is rife with idolatry, uh, and they know exactly what what this looks like. They know exactly what the dangers of idolatry are, and I'm sure they see it everywhere, and they know that they need to keep themselves from that. For us, though, today, um, most of us, um, I'm assuming, are not tempted, you know, to bow down and worship the goddess Artemis, or to bow down and worship, you know, some strange wooden relic uh, that we find in the back of Goodwill or something like that. But the Bible tells us that idolatry is actually a lot more than just bowing down to other gods and physical images. Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Paul is saying here in, in Colossians that sexual immorality, impurity, greed, lust, and evil desires are all also idolatry. And those are things that I struggle with, and those are things that I can understand. A couple years ago, I read a book uh, by Pastor Tim Keller called Counterfeit Gods, and the book is entirely about idolatry. And uh, Pastor Tim Keller defines an idol, or to use his term for it, a counterfeit god, as a counterfeit god is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. I think that a lot of things that we tend to idolize in themselves are not wrong. So common 
you know, vices, easy things for us to pick on as idols are going to be money, like Paul just talked about, greed, uh, or sex, or relationships, or alcohol. Those are kind of easy, easy ones that we often find ourselves kind of picking at and, and pointing at as idolatry. And money in itself isn't, isn't wrong. Sex in itself isn't necessarily wrong. Um, these are things that God has given us as gifts for us to enjoy, but when we use them out of the context that God has given, a, that God has given them to us, that's when we can wind up in idolatry and in trouble. And so an idol is just when we take something that's a good thing and that we make it into the main thing. When we look for our ultimate satisfaction in something other than God, that's when we're having an idolatry issue. And this can be literally anything. And so, you know, sex and money are the easy ones to pick on, but we can idolize our careers, we can idolize our families, we can idolize uh, maybe like our church involvement or participation. Whenever we're putting something uh, more important than God, that's when we're having an idolatry issue. And so John's pretty clear that we need to keep ourselves uh, from idols, whatever kind of idol it is, that we need to keep ourselves from that. And I think that John gives us three reasons or three ways that we can keep ourselves from idolatry. And so first, uh, one of the main ways that John tells us in this passage that we, need to keep, that we can keep ourselves from idolatry is that we need to remember what our identity is in Jesus. One of the ways that we can keep ourselves from idolatry is by remembering our identity in Jesus. In our verses for today, John refers to believers both as children of God and as being born of God. These are uh, two terms that he uses throughout his entire letter. And just like when a child is adopted from one family into the next, believers, we are adopted into God's family, just like you know, when, when a kid is adopted from one family into another. Prior to knowing Jesus, the Bible t- tells us that our identity uh, is in the world. This is a term that John uses a lot, um, both in his gospel and in his letters. And he uses the term the world uh, to mean sin, death, evil, destruction, stuff like that. Um, and so when John talks about the world, he's not talking about like the dirt, the earth that we walk on. He's talking about sin and our evil desires and, and things like that. It's a, it's a metaphor that he's using. And the Bible tells us that prior to knowing Jesus, prior to being children of God, our identity is, is in the world and that we are living in darkness. Our identity is in ourselves, which unfor- unfortunately is in uh, our own sin and in our own mistakes and in our own mess-ups. But once we place our faith in Jesus, we are adopted from the family of the world into God's family. And we are no longer ruled by our own sin. Jesus' death and his resurrection changes us, and we are given life. We're no longer owned by our sin. We are no longer owned by death. We are no longer owned by our mistakes. Sin and death are nullified because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. They no longer have any power over us because we don't belong to that family anymore. We belong to God's family. We're not owned by our mistakes like we used to be. In John 1.12, John says, Yet to all who receive him, meaning Jesus, 
to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Once we place our faith in Jesus, we are adopted into a new family. Our sin and our mistakes no longer have any power over us because our identity is in Jesus and in his death and his resurrection. And our identity shapes our, shapes our actions. So for a simple illustration, if you uh, work maybe in a restaurant, um, your, part of your identity is that you're working in a restaurant. And some of your actions that are going to come from that is you're probably going to wash your hands a lot more at work uh, than if you're a construction worker. I don't have anything against construction workers. I work construction for a little while. But if you work in a restaurant, I'm going to guess that you're probably washing your hands a lot more than the guy building a house does. When you're the construction worker, though, you're probably going to wear eye protection and leather gloves, and you're going to have a tool belt because your identity as a construction worker forces you uh, to do those things and to have those things in a way that if you work in a restaurant, you're not going to have those things. You're not going to have eye protection or leather gloves. Or at least not, maybe now because of the coronavirus. But normally people don't wear leather gloves and, and eye protection in restaurants. And so our identity, who we are, leads us uh, to act in a certain way. And so because I'm a follower of Jesus, there are certain things that I choose to do and certain things that I choose not to do, or that I try to do. And so because I follow Jesus, I choose to be patient with people that are irritating me. I choose to forgive people that have wronged me, and I choose to, this is just a simple thing, I choose to wash out the glass peanut butter jar and recycle it because God tells me that I need to take care of his creation. And so those are just simple things that, that I do because my identity is in Jesus, or things that I strive to do. I took a psychology 101 class when I was in uh, community college a couple years ago. And in that class, I learned about what a self-fulfilling prophecy is. I'm just going to read the definition of it here so I don't butcher it. A self-fulfilling prophecy is an individual's prediction about the future that will come true because they believe it. So, for example, if you, are, uh, if you have like a speaking engagement at work and you tell yourself beforehand, I'm a terrible speaker, I'm going to do a really bad job, I'm going to stumble and mutter, and I'm going to mess this whole thing up, and I'm going to do a terrible job. Well, likely then, when you go to speak, you're probably going to do a terrible job because you told yourself you're going to do a terrible job and you're not going to be very confident. So that, then when you stumble over your words and when you make mistakes, you're going to tell yourself afterwards, man, I knew that that was going to happen. I knew that I was going to mess that up. That's what a self-fulfilling prophecy is. Whereas if you tell yourself, no, I'm, I've practiced, I'm confident, and I might mess a couple things up, but I'm going to recover and my, you know, my speaking engagement is going to go really well. Well, likely then that's, that's what's going to happen. And so when we identify ourselves as a follower of Jesus, and that when we know what our identity is, when we know who we are, uh, that's going to change the way that we act and set us up to keep ourselves from idolatry in a lot better way than if we're always telling ourselves that we're, you know, messed up and sinners and stuff like that. I was speaking to someone a couple months ago who uh, told me that he was a recovering drug addict, and he told me that this entire concept about what his identity was and about what a self-fulfilling prophecy was completely changed his struggle with addiction. 
he told me that prior to going uh, into his rehabilitation group, he could only label himself as an addict. And so he told himself, I'm an addict, and that all, all that enabled him to do was to use uh, heroin and other drugs. And so because he was an addict, all he could do was, was be an addict. Whereas he told me when he went to his rehab group and he learned the truth about himself, when he learned that he's loved by his family, that he's smart, that he's capable, that he's funny, and that he's confident, that's when he said that he was finally able to stop using because he learned that his identity was not in his mistakes. His identity was not in his addiction. It was in the truth about himself. And once he finally learned that, he was able to quit and stop using. And so for us as followers of Jesus, our identity is not in our sin. Our identity is not in our idolatry. And when we know that, we don't have to serve the idols that we used to. Romans 6.14 says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin is no longer our master. Our identity is no longer in our sin. We, sin has no power over us because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so, because our identity is in Christ, we don't need to turn to idols like we used to. When I know the truth about my identity, the truth about what Jesus has done for me, I don't have to fall back into idolatry. So this does lead us to kind of a, a bit of a predicament. And one of the, the second thing that John tells us that we need to remember is that there is, there is grace when we fail. So I know that in the past I've found myself thinking, okay, because I'm a child of God, because I'm no longer owned by my own sin, then why do I keep, make, why do I keep messing up? Why do I keep sinning and making mistakes? Uh, and that could kind of chip at me because then I would start to think, well, if I'm still messing things up, then maybe that says something about my identity and maybe that says that I'm not a child of God. Maybe that says that I'm not saved or, or something like that. And, and John actually uh, kind of makes this a little stickier because in our passage for today, he, he tells us that we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. And I know for me, I'm pretty critical of myself. Uh, in the past, I've really gotten wrapped up in that and I've thought, well, I'm still sinning. I'm still making mistakes. And so does that mean that I'm not born of God? Does that mean that I'm not a child of God anymore? And that isn't the case at all. What John tells us is he says that anyone born of God does not continue, bold and underlined, does not continue to sin. He doesn't tell us anyone born of God doesn't sin at all or anyone born of God never makes any mistakes. That's not what he says. While I was reading and, and studying for this, I came across a quote from a guy named John Stott, uh, who he writes a, a commentary, a book about 1 John. And he, he describes uh, this verse this way. He says, the tense of the verb, meaning the, the word continue, is present and implies continuity, habit, and permanence. It expresses the truth, not that he, the Christian, can never slip into acts of sin, but rather that he, the Christian, does not persist in it habitually or live in sin. The new birth results in new behavior. 
Sin and the child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet, but they cannot live together in harmony. John knows that we are going to sin. God knows that we are going to sin and that we are going to make mistakes. That's the reason that Jesus came in the first place, is that we, we messed things up. And so Jesus came uh, to give us grace for, for all of our sin and all of our mistakes. Earlier in 1 John, uh, John says that, I write this to you so that you won't sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. John and, and Jesus are expecting that we are going to mess up and that we are going to sin. Now, of course, he, he would rather that we don't. You would rather that your kids don't burn your house to the ground while you're out of town, but you still teach them how to call 911 and use a fire extinguisher just in case. God would rather we don't sin at all, but he still sent Jesus because we make mistakes. In our passage for today, uh, John writes that the one who is born of God keeps us or keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. Uh, the one who is born of God is a reference to, to Jesus, and he keeps them, us, followers of Jesus, safe, and the evil one, uh, the devil, cannot harm them. I think that uh, when John says this, what, what he's talking about is he's not talking about how we won't have a difficult life or, or have problems or get in trouble or anything like that. He's not talking about how our life is going to be free from pain. He's talking about how because of Jesus, we are saved from the eternal consequences of sin. Because of Jesus and his death and his resurrection, we no longer have to feel the eternal death, destruction, and separation from Jesus that is the natural byproduct of our sin. Because Jesus keeps us, to use John's term, he keeps us safe uh, from those consequences. And so we don't have to experience those things because Jesus already experienced it for us. The question then that, that I've found myself asking in the past is, to what extent will Jesus keep me? How many times am I allowed to make mistakes until Jesus finally throws in the towel and, and gives up on me? At what point do I become, become hopeless? Romans eight thirty five through 39, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about kind of this, this very idea, and he says, "'Who shall separate us from the love of Christ?' Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? It is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No amount of, sin, of our own sin can keep Jesus from keeping us. While part of our roles as, as believers is to fight against sin, I think that we can become so overly critical of ourselves and we can forget, I think of it really, really easily, uh, that God is a God of grace. I know that I, in the past, I've been pretty good at, at feeling guilty when I make mistakes, 
And the, the, thing, the thing that we need to remember is that no amount of our sin is going to keep Jesus from keeping us. No amount of our sin is going to keep God away from us because all of our sin was taken away at the cross. Grace doesn't only restore us when we fail, though. It also empowers us to fight against sin in the first place. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except which is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so you can endure it. The grace that God has given us, not only does it restore us when we mess up and when we sin, but it also empowers us to fight against sin in the first place. We, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside us and empowers us to fight against sin in the first place. And because of God's grace, because God is good, the Holy Spirit will help us to fight against our, our own sin and idolatry. A third thing that, that John says in, in our passage today about something that we need to remember uh, in order to keep ourselves from idols is that he tells us um, that Jesus is going to be the only one that truly satisfies us. In our passage, uh, in verse 20, John says, We also know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. This understanding that, that John talks about isn't primarily an intellectual understanding. There, I think there's an intellectual aspect to it, but John is, is telling us that we can understand and that we can know God through Jesus in a way that, that I know a close friend or in a way that I know my wife. I can know Jesus as another person uh, in a real, relational, personal way. I can have a personal, real relationship with Jesus. God isn't just uh, like the big guy in the sky. He is also interested in truly knowing who we are and, and loving us personally as we are. And so this understanding that we can have about God isn't just a, you know, I know that, that Jesus came to earth, or I know that Jesus died on a cross. There's, there's a lot more to it than that. And when John says that we can know him who is true, uh, when I first hear that, I think true, I think like true or false. Like we can know him who is true, that he's the real God, that he exists, unlike some of these other idols that we've been talking about. Um, and when, when John says that we can understand him who is true, what he's meaning is that we can know him who is, who is genuine. Jesus isn't just he doesn't just exist. He's, he is genuine, and he wants to know, to really know who we are. And when we have that kind of relationship with Jesus, that's going to satisfy us in a way that our idols will never be able to. What are we looking for to satisfy, you know, our, our need for security, or our need for intimacy, or our need for healing, our place for a belonging, our need for a community, or safety, or significance? Is that something that we're looking for in, in money or something in our, our career or something in our families? What are we looking for to satisfy ourselves? And to quote uh, another pastor, the thing with these things is that 
Money, money doesn't love you back. Uh, all of these idols that we can look to to try and satisfy us, they don't really care about us. And all we're going to end up doing is we're going to wind up dissatisfied in the end. Whereas Jesus can truly give us security. Jesus can give us healing. Jesus can give us a place of belonging and significance and a sense of worth that money or sex or our career will never be able to give us. I know that for me in the past, I have struggled, this is going to sound kind of weird at first, I have struggled a lot with making uh, morality an idol. So, allow me to explain because that's kind of confusing. I have placed far more importance on what I can or can't do than I have in Jesus. And I have, in the past, put a lot more faith in the good or bad things that I have done than I have in Jesus. I have felt like in, that I have can see my life sometimes as like a scale where if I do good things, I, I get points and I work my way up the scale. But then when I mess up and screw things up, that ticks me back down on the scale. And I feel like I can look at that and I can look at God and say, hey, check it out, I'm doing things well, you should love me, or uh, I'm not doing very well, maybe I shouldn't talk to God right now until I clean myself up. And that way of thinking, all that that did is that led me uh, to rely on myself and to idolize the, the good, or hopefully, you know, it led me to idolize the good things that I was doing, and it led me to idolize not doing bad things. And all that really, the place that that led me to uh, was just feeling guilt and shame and like I was inadequate because I felt like I could never measure up to, to the standard that I felt like God had for me. But when I remember the truth about the gospel and that when I remember that my identity in Jesus means that I am pure and I am holy and I am righteous because of Jesus' death on the cross, when I remember that there is grace when I fail— that's a total game changer because I don't have to rely on myself anymore to try and look good or to do good things because Jesus has already taken away my sin and my mistakes. Rather than placing my identity in myself and, the, and you know, the good or bad things that I've done, when I place my faith in Jesus and know the truth about what my identity is, that, that's when I'm the most satisfied. That's when I'm the happiest. That's when I'm the most content. And so we need to guard ourselves from idols, not just to guard ourselves from something, but we need to guard ourselves for something. We need to guard ourselves from idols because ultimately we are going to be so much more satisfied in Jesus than we're going to be in anything else that we try and worship. Let's pray. Jesus, I am thankful for today, and I am more thankful that my identity is in you. I'm thankful that my identity is not in my own sin or my mistakes or even in my accomplishments, but that my identity is in you. Thank you, Jesus, that you give us grace when we make mistakes and when we sin, and thank you that that grace is something that is never going to run out. Amen.